Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. Today's episode continues our study of Ezekiel as we look into the emotional autobiography of the prophet himself left for us in the book bearing his name. Not only will the prophet's story humanize the message of the book and make it personal, it'll also help us make the book personal to us as his story informs and inspires our own stories. Well, with an interview two weeks ago and an Easter episode last week, I thought it'd be a good idea to catch us back up on where we are in this podcast and what we're doing. As part of our goal to equip ourselves with all of the Bible, especially its neglected pages, we've been digging into the book of Ezekiel. And we've been doing it pretty slowly. We started back in the beginning of March, and we're still only in the first few chapters of Ezekiel. But that's kind of the point, right? If we just give a drive-by summary of all 48 chapters, then it's probably just going to stay one of those Old Testament prophet things we know a few trivia facts about now. But we really want to saturate ourselves in Ezekiel and its message because our goal is not just to read the book or even understand the basics of its message. We actually want to make it operative in our lives, actually have it make a difference in the way we think and live and witness and worship. And so it's good to sit here for a while on the shores of the Kibar Canal with Ezekiel and soak it all in. Because there's a lot to soak in. It's all scripture that we need that will transform us. So we looked at some first impressions of the book, what's good and what's bad about that. We flew 30,000 feet over the whole thing to get a bird's eye view of the structure and how the message of probing promises develops. And then we started diving into the actual chapters. Chapters 1 through 3 are the introduction to Ezekiel, and it's got this dual message, two sides of the same coin. Ezekiel's vision of God on the one hand, the holy almighty Lord on the move to save and to judge. And on the other hand, God's vision for Ezekiel, his prophet, puny mortal, set with a difficult mission of reaching a stubborn audience. And why God would want to do any of that in the first place, too. But if our goal is really to saturate ourselves in the book, then it's good not only to look piece by piece at the chapters, but also to trace out some big themes of the book as they come up. Already in the first few chapters of Ezekiel, we've encountered these important ideas that run throughout the entire book. Things like the movement of the presence of God, the necessary and empowering activity of his spirit, and more. These kinds of themes are embedded in the chapters that we read. So the more we can understand the themes and the way they develop, the better grasp we'll have of an individual passage's message when we come across it. That may not be something you've really focused on as you've read the Bible, especially in the U.S. We tend to take things in small bite-sized chunks. But it's good to think through the big themes of a book of the Bible, how they develop and how a passage you're reading fits into that. Not only will you get closer to the actual message that way, but it'll really make things more vivid and exciting, I think. We already noted how the activity, the quote-unquote movement of 
God's glory punctuates Ezekiel at key points, for example, and and knowing that helped us interpret the first chapter a couple of weeks ago. So today, we're going to trace out one of those key themes, if you can call it that, that surfaced in the first three chapters that we looked at, and it's the life of the prophet himself, his own story. If we walk through Ezekiel 1 all the way to Ezekiel 48, what do we see in his personal experiences and struggles and hopes and victories? How can that enrich and enlighten our reading of the text? How can Ezekiel's own story overlap with our own stories and enrich and enlighten them? That'll be today in a nutshell. So let's look into it. There were some details from our look at the first three chapters of Ezekiel that we just skimmed past in our previous episodes that are worth stopping to think about. In the very first verse, the book marks this opening vision in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month. And then later we get this parenthetical note, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. And scholars have been scratching their heads trying to figure out 30th year of what, man? Because there's no major historical event that this lines up with based on the way things are dated in the rest of the book. But what we find in Numbers 430 is that 30 years old was the age that priests qualified for service and started their priestly ministry. And all of a sudden, it all makes sense. Ezekiel 1-3 through is filled with first-person language. I, I, I. But verses 2-3 through talk in third person. Like the person compiling these prophecies, or an Israelite passing it on, inserted an important note of clarification to help readers understand what's going on. This date was actually the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. This Ezekiel was a priest, and the word of the Lord came to him while he was in exile. It's like a quick side note set up sticky noted to this personal journal account Ezekiel wrote down. And then we're back to the first person stuff. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind. So think about it. The way the book of Ezekiel is arranged... The very start of the story is the very start of what should have been Ezekiel's career as a priest. And here he is on foreign soil, the whole priestly system barely hanging on by a thread back in Jerusalem. And God breaks into his world with a whole different career path in mind. Now, ancient Near Eastern priests and temples may sound like the stuff of documentaries to us, but that's as real as it gets for the world they were living in. In fact, that's part of God's agenda in the Bible. The priests, the temple, it's all part of his setup and his plan for history. And when you think about Ezekiel 1 through 3 as a prospective priest journal entry, that's some emotional stuff, man. You thought all your Jewish brothers and sisters would come to you to maintain their relationship with God? Well, actually, you're going to be a very lonely and hated person as a prophet. God is going to use you to bring the people to court for their covenant crimes. You thought you would maintain the holy system set in place for sacrifices and ritual cleanness and spiritual order and health. 
Yeah, that's all being desecrated right now. And my holy presence has already left the building. And just where we would think his life is ending is actually just the beginning of his story. It's just the beginning of this 48-chapter book. Now, we may think from these details in the introduction that all 48 chapters are going to be some juicy details about the life of the prophet and his character development and inner thoughts. But that's not actually what we get. In fact, Daniel Block, in his commentary on Ezekiel, points out that there's only six verses after this point, really just five actually, I think, where we get a glimpse into Ezekiel's response to what's happening or what's being prophesied or what he sees in a vision. So that's 414, 98, 1113, 2049, and 373. Just those five verses. In fact, Block even says, and I quote, in spite of the autobiographic form, one wonders if the real Ezekiel is ever exposed. What we see is a man totally under the control of the spirit of Yahweh. Only what God says and does matters. Now, he's not wrong. Ezekiel is not the main character in this book. God is. In fact, Ezekiel often seems like he's just a prop in the hands of the Spirit of God to communicate God's message. Remember, there's that big contrast that runs throughout the book. Infinite, holy, almighty, and just God on the one hand, and puny, mortal over here on the other hand. What significance does Ezekiel really have, right? Or us, for that matter, if we're honest. It's kind of humbling. Still, I think it's a stretch to say only what God says and does matters. Because Ezekiel's story is embedded in this book. The whole book starts at what should have been the start of his priestly ministry. You can't read all the first-person accounts, I, 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 and not get a sense for how personal this stuff was for the prophet. This is his story. Even if God hijacks his life, that is his story. And I think there are more artistic and emotional and powerful ways that we see Ezekiel's story unfold in the book at critical moments. But it is worth noting, like, it's not always a pretty picture. All five of those verses I mentioned earlier where you see a snapshot of Ezekiel's response to something can pretty much be paraphrased down to, Oh Lord Almighty, what the heck? If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, right after the Spirit of God gives Ezekiel the opening vision, he says in chapter 3, verse 14, I went in the bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling by the Kibar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. This is almost Jonah-level stuff in terms of how not to be a prophet. Ezekiel, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Okay, I'm just going to sit here for a week. Like, Despite our temptation to idealize so-called heroes of the faith, Ezekiel is not free from the stubborn, resistance that characterizes the rest of his neighbors. 
In so many ways throughout the book, God's Spirit works in spite of many obstacles to get through to the people. And in some ways, God works in spite of Ezekiel too. But you got to hand it to Ezekiel. Like, we would probably handle things even worse. Remember that the prophecies and visions in Ezekiel are intentionally shocking, provocative. They're, they're very urgent because of what's about to happen to Jerusalem as part of God's judgment. And in the middle of all these prophecies, the voice of little Ezekiel pipes up every once in a while to humanize and ground what's envisioned in our actual experiences and thoughts. I was listening to a news podcast once, and it was like the announcements or credits section of something of the show, and someone was saying, we've been getting a lot of questions about why our host says, hmm, all the time during the interviews. Like, apparently they were getting a hard time about that. But their justification was, that's because he's standing in for the audience. In other words, the host of this news podcast was intentionally interjecting even though the spotlight was on someone else being interviewed, because it helped to make listeners feel like they were the ones engaging in the conversation. It helped to make listeners feel like there was an actual dialogue going on, and we can imagine ourselves in that listening role, even without thinking about it. I think Ezekiel's personal story and personal involvement, these interjections, function that way for us in the book, too. He's kind of standing in for us as the audience at points, where he falls on his face and says, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He kind of voices what's already going through our minds and hearts and grounds these otherworldly visions in earthly human experiences and emotions. The fact that these prophecies are recorded in some ways as a personal diary or first-person account shows that Ezekiel is not just an irrelevant microphone for God, as if he might as well used a donkey, but rather he's the unique and important vessel through which this message takes shape. God's word and will is not an abstract philosophy lecture in the sky, it's embodied first in the prophet himself before it even goes out to reach the people. You'll occasionally see passages like Ezekiel 2-3 to that don't even address the crowds. They only really address Ezekiel, the prophet. If he was completely irrelevant, then those sections wouldn't need to be there. But they are there, and they tell us something about the way the prophet plays a part in the message that he relays to God's people. So if I'm right, and Ezekiel's story is embedded in the book bearing his name, if I'm right, and the prophet himself actually plays a part in shaping and flavoring the message, then what else other than the opening chapters can we really look at for details on his story? Well, we've already seen this huge, shocking, unexpected introduction to Ezekiel's story mirror the huge shocking, unexpected introduction to the book as a whole. And I believe that's intentional. I actually think that major developments in Ezekiel's personal life mirror the major developments of the prophecies and message of the book. The book of Ezekiel is filled with sign acts, these acted out prophecies that symbolize the message. 
But Ezekiel himself is the ultimate sign act, and his life is the stage for God's message to his people to unfold. We see that midway through the book at the turning point and in the finale at the end too. For now though, stop for a second to think about what we've talked about so far. Notice where Ezekiel is coming from before the ball even starts rolling in chapter 1. What emotions, what expectations and disappointments he's bringing to the table as his life is hijacked and the Spirit of God controls him for the purpose of this ministry. Okay, moment of reflection over. So if Ezekiel 1 through 3 is the first major autobiographical section in Ezekiel's story, I'd say chapter 24 verses 15 through 27 is the next one, at least in terms of uh, focused attention on Ezekiel's personal life. At that point, the ultimate tragedy in the prophet's life comes to represent the ultimate tragedy in the life of the nation of Israel the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. It's worth reading that entire section if you have the time, but here's my paraphrase, basically. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, I am about to take away the delight of your eyes in the blink of an eye, but you shall not mourn or weep or let tears stroll down your cheek. And so I spoke to the people during the day, and by evening my wife died. And the next morning, I did just as God told me, no crying or mourning. And the people asked me why, and I told them what the Lord told me. Ezekiel is a sign for you. I will take away my own temple, the delight of your eyes, the yearning of your soul, your own fellow Israelites, sons and daughters. And every way that Ezekiel has acted is how you will act because of another wave of exile. And there's like this pause on the main events of the story and the unfolding development of Ezekiel until chapter 33 picks it back up, like right where we left off. And Ezekiel gets a kind of recommissioning, another version of the Watchman analogy, and then the account of the fall of Jerusalem happens to mirror what happened with Ezekiel losing his wife. And it's at that point, at the lowest of all lows, both for Ezekiel and for the people of Israel, that Ezekiel's mouth is opened. He's no longer mute. And a new phase in the ministry begins. It's as if Ezekiel's personal loss with the death of his wife is the ultimate climax of the first section of the book in its message of coming disaster. And the parallel that it symbolizes, the fall of Jerusalem, opens up the last section on messages of hope with the judgments against the nation in the middle. So we see with the artistic literary devices and with explicit explanations in the text, the death of Ezekiel's wife is the mirror event to all that the first part of the book has been leading up to, the final nail in the coffin of Judah's society. No more Jerusalem. No more Jerusalem temple religious and national life as they knew it was shattered. The very things they treasured most were lost, just like the person Ezekiel treasured most was taken from him. All that emotion that we feel stepping into Ezekiel's shoes gets 
injected into what seems to us to be a boring historical fact about the fall of a city. Losing Jerusalem was as personal a loss to God's people as suddenly losing your spouse. And as shocking and difficult as it is, not even being able to mourn for them because of your circumstances is how shocking and difficult it was for the people of Israel. Ezekiel is the ultimate sign act. He embodies the message and the movement of the book. But if that's true of the tragic turning point, it's also true of the glorious finale. The last nine chapters of Ezekiel detail a vision even more intricate and grand than anything we've seen before in the book. And it's a vision of a new kind of temple, a new kind of society living in harmony with it and with God. Now, nothing in this section says, thus concludes the personal life of Ezekiel. But it keeps up the first-person narration. Ezekiel is personally witnessing all this in visionary form. Regardless of when that particular vision happened on a timeline, it's presented here as the conclusion to the whole plotline that started way back in chapter 1 with a coming-of-priest-age Ezekiel. Ezekiel lost his chance at ministering in Jerusalem's temple. He even lost the temple itself along with his wife. But God's justice and redemption would extend so far and so thoroughly that a new kind of temple reality would await him and his people. The God that commissioned him and used him to probe the rebellion of his people would dwell in holiness and harmony in ways that were even better than the good old days, even more secure and unshakable than what he used to think of the old complex. When we understand all that the temple means and all that it meant to the Israelites and to Ezekiel, and when we invest in the story of the prophet himself, There is so much incredible beauty and hope bursting from these final pages. Not only is this a triumphant and hopeful conclusion to the message of Ezekiel, it's a triumphant and hopeful conclusion to the prophet's own story. It's his vindication. It's his comfort, his destiny, his rest, and his God unhindered by the sins of and savage consequences of what led up to this. So hopefully it's clear at this point how leaning into the story of the prophet can inform and enrich our understanding of the message of the book as it unfolds. The priestly temple system stuff that fills the book may seem foreign to us, but when we look at it through the eyes of an heir to the priesthood, who never got the chance at his calling, it comes alive. It becomes pregnant with emotions, mixed emotions. Ezekiel himself becomes the ultimate sign act for God's people, experiencing and embodying the prophecies of judgment and hope in ways we can barely imagine. And as we witness his interjections and his emotions, we're given a window into the grief of the Israelites as a whole. And sometimes we're even 
given a window into God's reaction and emotions, if we can call it that. He's even more invested in his temple and his people than Ezekiel is, after all. But now the question comes, what do we do with all that today? What do we do with all that today? So what? Well, think about Ezekiel's personal investment in the temple and priesthood as a priest himself. His life was absolutely full of expectations and disappointments. Not even just the worldly stuff that he had to give up on, but good Israelite spiritual expectations of being a priest totally shattered because of his exile to Babylon. Even more shattered when the Lord actually declares and brings about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. By the end of the book, we come full circle back to a beautiful, powerful portrayal of everything the temple is supposed to be. Everything Israel, his homeland, is supposed to embody. But he didn't get there the way he was probably thinking he would when he turned 30. In our life, we bring our own hopes and dreams and spiritual expectations to our relationship with God. They might not even be the bad worldly stuff that's more obviously a problem. It could be good Christian hopes and dreams, dreams of peace and love, expectations for a just society, a healed family, a thriving spiritual experience, a healthy and successful church. But signing up in Christ's kingdom is not a quick and easy way of checking off all those good things that we want. Our Christian journeys might be filled with disappointments and hardships, shocks and struggles. We might not see those good things we wanted to the way that we wanted to. But stepping into the shoes of Ezekiel and his tragedies helps us to work through the disappointments in our own lives as we try to follow and serve God. In the end, like the real end, far beyond the horizon that we can see as a final redemption where God makes all things right, where he brings justice to society, healing to brokenness, removes the obstacles to our spiritual shalom, makes the community of his people the holy and harmonious lot that we dream to be. But in the meantime, in the middle of our stories, we don't get a look to God for our best lives now so much as he looks at us and says, I'm calling the shots. We offer up all that we are, all that we have, all that we do, and he hijacks it. Thankfully, he wants to use it all for his purposes. And the legacy of the Ezekiel that sits with his arms crossed, silent on the shores of the Kibar Canal, is different from the legacy of the Ezekiel who eats the scroll, takes it in, and lets the Spirit of God use him. In a sense, Ezekiel is just a guy that the Lord calls out from among a stubborn group of people to say, you be different. You don't put up 20 different layers of walls to block me out and shut out my message. You take responsibility for this message and work at communicating it faithfully and intelligently to your people. 
You, eat this scroll, embody this message. From the inside out, live out this pattern of death to life and dependence on me. Like every part of that speaks volumes into our own stories. Not only to inform what they should look like, but to inspire us despite the difficulties and hang-ups and disappointments. Like Ezekiel, we may find that being disappointed by God is the greatest thing that could have happened to us. Because it's there that we find his ways are far better and far more promising than our own, even while the world around us crashes down. One of my favorite songs is John Foreman's Mercy's War, and it really captures the mercy of these divine disappointments. I went looking for the fig leaves, and you asked me what they're for. I was building up a wall, and you offered me a door. I was hoping for silver spoons when you handed me a sword. Oh, the wonderful blood of Jesus. I went looking for a religion, absolutely not a friend. I went looking for ways out, and you showed me the way in. I went looking for a ghost, and instead I found a man. Oh, the wonderful blood of Jesus. I was chasing after safety when my world went up in flames. You sought all my defenses, watched my ashes down the drain. Thought that mercy was a stranger, but you called me out by name. Oh, the wonderful blood of Jesus. This is mercy's war. This is mercy's war. As we sit on the Kibar Canal, soaking in the book of Ezekiel, don't forget about this layer to this story, the story of the prophet himself. Remember where he's come from. Remember what he's going through, the journey he's on throughout the book. Let all of that make it more real to you, more emotional, more down-to-earth and personal. The fact that this is all coming through Ezekiel is part of the message. We aren't hearing about the corrupted Jerusalem temple and the holiness of God and the new kind of temple of the future from just anybody. We're hearing it from a priest that never got the chance to play his part the way he wanted to, but was given the chance by God to play a different, vital role in the redemption of his people. But don't just let the personal story of the prophet inform and enrich your reading of the text. Let it inform and enrich your own story. You be different. You don't put up 20 different layers of walls to block God out and shut out his message. You take responsibility for that message. Work at communicating it faithfully and intelligently to your people. You digest his word. Embody it from the inside out. Live out this pattern of death to life and dependence on his spirit. And when we take all that seriously, suddenly the book of Ezekiel doesn't seem so unattractive and irrelevant. Its story and its message becomes our own. A story of God breaking us down, of dying to self, of coming to terms with God's assessment and judgment so that he can build us back up on his own character, his own story, 
his own plans an uncomfortable but truly satisfying redemption. Lord, wage your mercy's war on us. Disappoint us in our inferior expectations and use our lives, our persons, our stories, our witness to carry out your own plan for true redemption. Amen. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson. If you found today's podcast spiritually helpful, be sure to spread the word and join us again next Monday as we continue in the book of Ezekiel. See you then. Thank you.